If you're visiting with us this morning, we are, since January, been working our way through uh, a book written by the Apostle John. I know that it doesn't seem like a book, but the Bible is uh, uh, broken up into 66 individual writings that uh, churches call books. And one of them is the Gospel according uh, to John. And we've been systematically or slowly working through trying to understand its meaning, its purpose, its application for our life. And so we've gotten to the eighth chapter of that uh, book. Originally, they didn't have chapters and verses. They were added later to help people find their place. John, unlike a lot of writers, doesn't tell us the reason for his writing until almost the very end of his book. In chapter 20, if there are 21 uh, chapters or 21 divisions of the gospel according to John, he waits to almost the very end to tell us. And he says, Jesus did way more than, than what I've written here in the first uh, 19 and a half chapters. But I write these, these encounters, these miracles, these stories, the ones that I have chosen, in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and so that you might have eternal life. That is, John is making an argument to to his readers all the way into the 21st century, all the way from the first century, that if you listen to his argument, he believes that it's credible, that it is reasonable, that it's rational to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And so we've been making that argument as we have gone through applying it, to right here and right now. So I'm going to read, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 8, if you found your place there or you can follow along on the screen. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to belong to to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Before we get to our text, I want to remind you that next week following this service at 1045, I'll be hosting a pastor's forum for anyone in the church that wants to understand where we're going. There are a couple of three things that we've been working on in the church that I want to just give you some updates on down in the sanctuary regarding to the updates to the campus uh, look, uh, regards to discipleship and with regards to uh, worship. And so if you would like uh, to hear that, we'll be down in the fell shop. Go ahead and get a, a cup of coffee. And at 1045, we'll begin promptly. I promise not to keep you long because many of you will need to go on uh, to a Sunday school or to worship. Today, as we come to our text for today, the setting, and that'll help us understand the context of why Jesus says what he says here to further this argument that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Next week, obviously he's been making this claim that I am God and that I bring eternal life. You got to do something with that information. Even if you're a follower of Jesus from the fringes, from the edges, you have to deal with the fact of who he claims to be and what he claims to do. Next week, I'm going to tell you that there are four options of what to do with his claims. One of them is impossible. Two are improbable. And the fourth is inescapable. But in order to set that up, I've John, and I've been pointing out as we've gone along, what these claims are. And Jesus is going to do another claim through a different metaphor that he's been doing up till now. The setting here is that, that Jesus has become wildly popular. That is, John's gospel is not written uh, equally in the three years of ministry of Jesus. In fact, he's weighted almost all of the writing, not all of it, but a good portion of the writing toward the last few months of his ministry. So when chapter 8 comes along, we're, we're way at the end of Jesus' time on earth and particularly his uh, ministry on earth. And because of that, when it says that he's become wildly popular, it's not because all of a sudden everybody has followed him. There's been a building of the crowd that has come in, and they're they're crushing around him. And even if you knew this was going to happen, it's different to experience the crushing of the crowd, the demands of the crowd for, for, for water and food, the demands of the crowd to be healed, the demands of the crowd to be taught, the demands of the crowd to see signs. So much so that they have been ministering literally almost a full day to the same crowd. And, and every time they move, the crowd just moves with him. To the point where they have been ministering all day long and it's starting to get, it's starting to get too late to, for them to go home to get a meal. And so uh, Jesus performs a miracle and it's preceding the passage that we read today 
It's the passage of the feeding of the 5,000. That is, this crowd is about 5,000. We're not sure if that 5,000 is just men. And therefore, when you add women and children, it's much bigger than that. Or let's just say it's a crowd of 5,000. That's a lot of people to feed when you only have a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And so he turns that minuscule amount of food into enough food to feed the crowd and to have leftovers. But he's tired. But not only is he tired, his followers are tired. His disciples have been involved in the delivering of this food, praying for people, uh, uh, teaching on the sides. They're tired. They're exhausted. And so Jesus puts them in a boat and says, uh, go to the other side away from the crowds and get some rest. So they, they trek out in the boat. And while they're going out, Jesus comes walking on the water next to the boat. And if that's not a surprise enough, when he gets into the boat, he takes a nap and a storm comes up. And the disciples are worried and he gets up and calms the storm. Now, all of this isn't recorded in the chapter that we have, but chronologically is what's going on in this context. They're trying to get away from the crowd to get a little bit of rest so they can minister to the crowd again. What we have in our text is the crowd is following. They're not necessarily in boat, but some of them probably did get in boats if they had boats. But most of them kept following the shoreline and went around the water and were there when Jesus and the disciples got to the other side. We know that because that's what verse 25 says. When they found him on the other side of the sea. So the question that's being begged is, why in the world were they following? Was it because he did these incredible signs? Was it because he had this incredible teaching? Was it because he had this incredible charismatic personality? Jesus says, no, it wasn't any of those things. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The reason I say that is something that... Um, the reason I read that that way at that point is because something is, that Isaac said at the beginning, we want to be satisfied in life. We're not talking about mere existence, getting through this life. We're in pursuit of the quality of life. Whatever that definition is for you, whatever that definition is for our culture, whatever that definition is for humanity, we're in pursuit of it. We're not talking about mere existence biological existence, something more than that. And so Jesus has been playing on two metaphors, and he's changing metaphors here. For those who need to remember English, a metaphor is something that represents something else, something that stands for something. And so in in chapter 4 and 5, the metaphor has been water. The woman at the well, and then some of the people who were following around Jesus, he began to teach about water. And how he is the living water. In fact, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven declarations, claims of Christ, of who he is. And he says, I am the living water. Today, in verse 35, he's going to say, I am the bread of life. That's another I am statement. I just want you to know, he's not changing meanings. He's just simply changing metaphors. That is, they mean the same thing. He's just saying, you want satisfaction, you want real life, you want meaning and purpose, you want to last, you you want 
significance, you want recognition, that's your definition of quality of life, it can only be found in me. That doesn't mean you don't pursue those things on your own. That doesn't mean you try not to get satisfaction in your life by pursuing other things. Jesus is saying that is just an appetizer. Jesus is not saying if you pursue these other satisfactions, that's a waste of your time. He is just saying these other things, these other pursuits, music and beauty and truth and goodness and lasting and meaning and purpose, they're good things, but they're only appetizers. They're only pointing to the real thing, me. So this pursuit of satisfaction, Jesus isn't saying, don't waste your time. He's just saying, move from the appetizer to the main meal. And he used that same terminology, that same idea when he talked about water, which is necessary for life. But he also says that about the bread. So he's saying the same thing using two different metaphors. Just as the woman needed or wanted water, he's saying that we need or want bread. And therefore, I'm going to use the Christian digestive system to kind of help you understand what I'm talking about. That is, just as you have a physical digestive system, do you know how it works? You know, fifth grade, sixth grade, is that where you kind of like... This picture is from fourth grade. Fourth graders know that you eat food, it goes into your stomach... The stomach breaks it down, it goes into the intestines, and it's there that it's absorbed into the body. And then the, the stuff that's not any good is, becomes waste. Fourth graders understand that's how it works. Do you understand as a Christian who's not a fourth grader that that's also how the bread works? How Jesus works? He comes into you. He's absorbed into you and he becomes part of you. I don't mean that in a mystical Eastern idea. I mean in the sense of that Jesus doesn't just come into your mind and give you knowledge. Jesus doesn't come into you, just into your heart and change your emotion. Jesus comes into all of you and changes everything about you. That's his promise, to make you new. So Paul says, right? If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Obviously, in this life, you're not going to be perfectly new yet. That's going to happen when Christ returns and makes everything new. But until then, he's making you new if you, you bring him in. That's the idea behind this. Jesus is saying, not simply, am I the life? He is saying that if you take me into you, I will become part of your life. And so what I'm trying to do on Sunday mornings, if you're you're trying to figure this out, is I'm trying to take Christianity from different perspectives, coming at it from different angles in order for all of us together, no matter what your background, how close and how much you've spent in the life of the church or not, in the life of the church, that we can see the gospel's beauty, that we can see the goodness, the truth, the logic 
behind it so that we might believe. I'm not asking you to believe blindly. That would be wrong and naive of me. To ask you simply to trust me. Many of you don't even know me. Why trust me? A lot of you know me. Why trust me? So I'm not going to appeal on trust me. I'm going to ask you to sit there and evaluate yourself. And look and see the beauty, the logic, the truth, the goodness, the realness of what's being presented to you. And then I just simply ask you to deal with it. Don't ignore it. Don't say that's really neat and cute or cool and act as if it's not important. But then. So our text simply says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. So what is the bread? If, if, if he says the bread of life, I am, what he's really saying is I am the life. But in the way that I am the life, I am like life, eternity, like bread. And so we have to answer the question first, what is life? Then we can get into what is the bread. Understand in the scriptures, you see it twice. He says, I'm the bread of life in 35, but back in 27, he says, eternal life. That word life there, Greeks had two different words. And I don't mean to do a word study on you, but they they tended to do two different ideas about life. We do as well, but we use the same word. For these two definitions, we use the same word. They used two words and they meant different things. Do you understand that? When Jesus said this, when John sat down and wrote this, he picked the word that is not what we typically mean by life. Existence. The Greeks had a word for that called bios. We had the word biology from it. The study of life. And the idea is that in one sense, life means just simply existence. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm I'm alive today. I hope to be alive tomorrow. That's simply what one definition could mean. Now, it's not the word that Jesus chose to use in all of these uh, instances that he uses the word life. Sometimes he'll call it eternal life. Sometimes he'll call it the bread of life. But in each case, he's using the word zoe, Z-O-E. And that simply means not existence, but quality or kind or type of life. You know, the difference between coach and first class is a quality of life. Particularly if you're going from here to Australia or here to Indonesia. Wasn't that something? Wouldn't that have been great to be in first class? There's nothing like being on a plane for 20 hours. Nothing. So what's, what's being described here is not simply Jesus is offering further existence, more, more physical, biological existence. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, then I offer a quality, a kind, a type of life that truly satisfies. And therefore, it's the difference between existing And truly living. One way hell can be defined as a place where you exist without living. Which means heaven is a place where you exist 
and you truly live the way that God meant you to be. And that's what Jesus is offering. He's not saying out there, hey guys, come, come, come believe in me and I'll give you more existence beyond death. That, that's true, but that's not what he's offering. He says, I'm, a, I'm the bread of life that gives quality living. The way in which you were intended to be. You know, it's like most of us have something at our house that just doesn't work right. Maybe it's your garbage disposal. Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's a bicycle. It could be your lawnmower. And you've just learned to adapt to its brokenness. And so you don't even see it as broken anymore because it still performs the function in which you hoped it would. Or you'd go out and get a new one. Or at least a used one. Well, our lives are like that. That is, we've become so broken, yet we still function. And so sometimes we don't even notice that we're broken. Because we've gotten along so well with the functionality of who we are or how we're operating in this world. We, we just figure if functionality equals living, functionality equals life. And Jesus is saying, no, I meant so much more for you than functionality, utilitarianism. I designed you for beauty. I designed you for goodness, for holiness, completeness. I I want you to be reintegrated with all that I meant you to be. And so I had to send my son to make that even possible, to accomplish that task. So... Therefore, for all of us, existence is simply not enough of life. That is, to be a lump of humanity who sits on the couch and and calls that living isn't living. It's existing, but it's not living. And the truth be told, many of us exhaust ourselves in pursuit of truly living without knowing what truly living is. This is why Jesus will say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Do you see what He's saying? Jesus came to give you true living. Even while you've been pursuing what you thought true living was. That's why Augustine has this wonderful, great quote. Our hearts are restless until they can rest in God. That is, until we recognize that all of the pursuing, all of the exhaustion of our lives have been, in essence, running away from God rather than to Him. That true living, true quality kind of life is found only in God. And until we rest in that, we will always feel exhausted here and now. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's so easy to admit. Last night, uh, we kept our all three of our grandchildren together. And um, there's a reason why God does not give twins and a three-month-old to 55-year-olds. It was exhausting. 
There was n- the only break. Kathy said, well, how could it be exhausting to you? I had the baby. <laughs> but life is exhausting. And Jesus doesn't mean for it to be so exhausting when we find our rest in him. The gospel simply is this. The creator has come down as a person. He didn't come down as an idea. He didn't come down as a philosophy. He doesn't come down as a thought. He came down as a person. And that has all kinds of implications we'll see in a moment. But all kinds of implications for what it means to pursue life in Christ. In a person. Not just in an ideal or a philosophy. And this person came to die for you. He has taken your judgment in your place. I know you didn't ask for it. But he did that because he wants a relationship with you. And the only way he can have... A holy God can have a relationship with an unholy human being is that he has to make you holy. And the only way to make you holy is because you're not cooperating is to do it in your place. Without your permission and without your cooperation. It's the essence of the gospel. He's removed all of the liens on your soul. Not by canceling the debt, but by taking the debt himself. And therefore, he can say to you, no matter what you have done, No matter how close to hell you've been living, you are forgiven. That's why Jesus says, I am the life. You can't find life of this kind of quality anywhere else. I have come into you to be in you through the life of the Spirit. And therefore, your life is no longer a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, because he has filled you with himself. And therefore, you have a new identity that defines you, that is beyond you, that is more than you, that is better than you. And you can truly say, I'm now living. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who delivered himself up for me. This life truly satisfies. So the natural question that comes up is, where does this bread come from? If that's the bread, where does it come from? We have to admit this is that we tend to think that Christianity is a Western religion. And if you don't believe it's a Western religion, you must believe it's an Eastern religion because aren't those the only two choices we have? And the reality is Christianity is neither Eastern nor Western. In fact, Western religion takes its philosophy from the Greeks who simply say that what's wrong with the world is that it's broken, it's fallen, it's messed up. And what you need is to be part of the spiritual. 
You need to be part of that. And the, and the way to get there is through knowledge. Let me tell you, that finds roots in the Enlightenment. That finds its reality in postmodern America today. That all you need is a little bit more information, and then you got it. Christianity doesn't say that. Nor is it Eastern. Eastern philosophy goes like this. There is a force, there is, a, there's, there's this uh, movement that is out there that you can tap into through mystical experiences. And Christianity is not less than truth. It's not less than knowledge. It's not less than um, uh, mystical experience. But it's far more than that because Christianity is a person. Do you ever notice that about the, even the name Christianity? Do you, do you know what Christian means? Christ ones. Followers of Christ. A person. God didn't send an idea. He sent a person. That we, you can go all the way back and check out the message we did on John 1. That's the whole idea behind where he says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That God didn't send a Word, He sent a person who had a Word. But it was a person. Life, therefore, is a personal relationship. Where do you get that from? Look at uh, uh, verses 31 and 32 with me real quick. They bring up this idea of the manna in the wilderness. If you don't know... When, when uh, Jews came out of slavery for about 400 years, they, they go into a, a desert wilderness region for about 40 years before they get to Israel uh, from slavery. And that wilderness experience, they needed food. They needed water. And so God provided that on a daily basis. And so they bring this up and say, hey, God gave us manna in the wilderness. Actually, they said Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is going to correct them. In verse 31, he says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you, notice the switch in tense, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Where does manna come from? Where does bread come from? From God. That's his point. Life comes from God. And it comes in the form of a person and a relationship to that person. That's why in verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, Zoe to the world, this quality, this kind, this purpose of life. And then they ask, naturally, Sir, can we have any of that bread? Verse 34, and Jesus' answer isn't found until verse 51 to that question. He's got some things he's going to do before then, but he waits all the way till almost the end of the conversation. And he says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You hear what he's saying? He says, my flesh. He's not talking about his life. He's talking about his death. 
Often Jesus will refer to his period of time on the cross as my flesh. Which is hundreds of years before Jesus said that. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he esteemed, we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Do you know what it's saying? you know what Jesus is saying here? And what Isaiah is agreeing with hundreds of years before he ever said it? Is bread is no good to you until it is broken and consumed. That is, you can go by the best bakery in town that has just made fresh bread. And though it can make your, 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 your glands in your mouth start to, start to water and your no factory glands work overload, it's not any good to you until you break it and eat it. It has to be consumed. Jesus has to be consumed. That's why he says, you have to eat my flesh. Early on, Christians thought that Jesus was talking about cannibalism. Not Christians. People outside the church thought that. And Jesus is not saying that at all. He's saying, unless unless I was broken, there can be no life. That is, you remain broken. You remain outside of the ability of what I have created you in fullness to be, which is shalom. And so they simply ask the question, what's the work then? What do we, what must we do? And Jesus' answer to them is believe. But what does that mean? Do you see that over and over again in this long section from verse 53? Through verse 58, he tells them, feed on me. All present tense verbs, which means always, continually, feed on me. What does that mean? How do you feed on Christ? He's been dead and resurrected 2,000 years ago. How is that even possible today? Takes you back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. You want to feed on Jesus? You feed on His Word. You go to it and say, I want a personal relationship and that requires me to know, but also to believe. And so let me tell you three quick questions that you can write down that help you to feed. They're not commanded by Scripture So don't hear me say you must do this every day. Because that would just be creating a command that you could not do. But I think this practice is what helps us grow. This practice leads us to feast on Christ that ultimately gives us the quality of life that we want so much and pursue. The first question is, what have I learned today as a result of reading the Scriptures that I can praise or thank God for? What is it that He's taught me about Himself, about myself, about the world that He created that I can praise Him or thank Him? And secondly, what have I learned today that I need to repent of? Oh, please, I know somebody's going to think, oh, this is where it gets dark and depressing. That's not how Luther thought of 
repentance. He thought of it as something that you naturally do every day of your life. As you see that your life is out of line, out of accord with all that God has designed the human being to be. The brokenness that we are. Repentance is simply to bring it back in the line. And of course that requires you to know it. Of course that requires you to begin to take steps to move back into line and typically ask someone to help you. We need to make that a normal part of our lives rather than something so foreign. One of the reasons our children refuse to repent is because they see their parents refusing to repent. And if it becomes part of who we are, then we pass that on as normal life rather than something that is only when you really, 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 really mess up. So if the first question is, what have I learned today that I can praise or thank God for? Second question is, what have I learned today that I need to repent of? And the third question, what have I learned today that I should share with someone else? And simply that could be your spouse, it could be your child, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be somebody inside the church, it could be somebody outside the church. But simply, what is God teaching me that I am not keeping it hidden? I'm going to share this great Truth, reality with someone else. That's what it means to feed. And therefore, Christianity becomes like a digestive process that we take it in. And it begins to break down. And we begin to absorb it into who we are. And then it becomes part of who we are. And that is daily feeding. This is believing. May God help us to be feeders on Christ. Not just sitters. Not just absorbers of information. But truly people who have been changed into a Zoe kind of life. All that God has meant us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the men and women and children in this room who want to understand, want to truly have a personal relationship with you, all of us. We thank you that you're constantly showing yourself to us, constantly reminding us of what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we become a people that feed on your Son as we feed on bread, that it becomes our sustenance of life, not our existence, but the type of life we live truly living. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.